In the Trauma-Informed Education podcast, you can get great ideas and practical advice for educators. You can get more invaluable insights and free resources by subscribing to our Trauma-Informed PBS monthly newsletter. Visit www.tipbs.com and register your email address. That's tipbs.com. Welcome to Trauma-Informed Education. I'm your host, Dr. Kay Eyre. Students with mental health concerns can be challenging to support in classroom environments. Although much has been written about the impact of such psychiatric difficulties on learning, teachers often have little guidance on effective strategies to support students with mood, anxiety, and other mental health concerns. So what can be done to help these students? Today, we speak with Jessica Minahan, author of the book, The Behaviour Code, A Practical Guide to Understanding and Teaching the Most Challenging Students. Jessica is a licensed and board certified behaviour analyst, special educator, and a consultant to schools internationally. Jessica has over 17 years of experience supporting students who exhibit mental health concerns and challenging behaviour in urban public school systems. She is also the author of the Behaviour Code Companion, Strategies, Tools and Interventions for Supporting Students with Anxiety-Related or Oppositional Behaviours. Jessica will be interviewed by my colleague, Dr. Govind Krishnamurthy. I hope you find this interview useful. Hi everyone. Um, welcome to Trauma Informed Education. I'm here as always. My name's Dr. Gavin Krishnamurti, and I'm here as always with Dr. K. Hi, Kay. Hello. How are you? Good. And we're super excited today to have Jessica Menahan um, speaking with us. Jessica, welcome. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Excellent. We might just jump right into it, Jessica. I wondered if you could start by telling us a bit about your background and what led you to working with educators. Yes, I started as a special educator working with kids with therapeutic needs, which we called a therapeutic classroom. And the children mostly had mental health disabilities. Um, Some kids had autism and mental health disabilities. And I really loved it. After I taught for two years, I started consulting to teachers in public schools, typically urban public schools, with kids who have challenging behavior. Um, My area of interest is working with kids with challenging behavior that's fueled by mental health issues. Um, When mental health is underlying the behavior, it gets a little more complicated. Some of our traditional behavior strategies don't always work, like incentives and consequences don't do what um, we hope sometimes. So it's sort of a different approach. And I to learn more, I got a master's in special education. And then I went on to um, become a BCBA, which is a board certified behavior analyst um, I, uh, uh, later. And um, 
just continued to work with um, schools and teachers on how to best support kids with mental health disabilities who are struggling in schools. Yeah, that's fascinating. And and you've written the book, The Behavior Code, which is just an excellent resource for people listening. Do um, uh, have a look at that. It's extremely helpful. So you wrote that book with um, Dr. Nancy Rappaport, if I'm saying that right. Um, and so how did you find that kind of mental health perspective complementing the PBS approach? Yeah, we... I had always been sort of learning to combine um, the applied behavior analysis training and best practices for shaping behavior towards positive with psychological um, information. Because as a therapeutic teacher and through my years, I always had to learn how to combine both. Because for example, um, if we just looked at um, behavior as attention seeking or inattentive, it would be the strategies would be quite different for a kid who has a trauma history and is inattentive as opposed to a kid with ADHD, uh, attention deficit disorder, and inattentive. The strategies would be really different. So I think it's very important to learn about the neurobiological underpinnings of mental health, the um, best practices for mental health, as well as understanding how to shape behavior and teach kids skills to shape behavior. So um, over the years, I've really collaborated with many different mental health professionals because I think it takes um, both those lenses to best support children who are struggling um, because we, we don't want to miss the mental health impact um, or we're, in my opinion, we're not analyzing thoroughly and would, would not necessarily come to a solution-based intervention um, if you don't make sure we're understanding the psychological profile and best practices for kids with psychological needs and psychiatric um, disabilities. Mm, yeah, that's that's really interesting. I think we've really come, I know at least here, and Kay could probably speak to this as well, where we've just come from the mental health just being like this black box that didn't necessarily inform a lot of how you did behavior support, to it, you know, being more integrated into how, um, you know, how interventions are designed and implemented. How do you explain what, say, something like anxiety is and how it impacts student behavior? How do you explain that to um, educators that you work with? Well, one really um, core concept about anxiety, and I found so helpful to understand, is that when anxiety increases, our working memory skills decrease. And that happens at the exact rate. So as anxiety increases, the working memory is going down at the exact same rate. And that's a huge problem because working memory is how we access or work with information in our short-term memory, how we hold information in mind. It's crucial for problem solving, for emotional regulation, for behavior regulation, for thought regulation. And that's exactly what is impacted. In fact, Functionally, we can lose 13 to 20 IQ points in a moment of anxiety, according to research. Mm -hmm. So 
I always um, joke that, you know, for me, losing 20 IQ points is sort of a hit, you know. Um, And for example, I have an embarrassing story that I always tell educators that I was on a first date once and I was so nervous because he was very cute and I was, uh, he was kind of out of my league, to be honest. And I was very nervous and he started to ask me nice questions and he said, so Jess, how many siblings do you have? And for some reason, I said, oh, I have four, which is strange because I've only had two my whole life, you know, and I said the wrong answer. And then I fumbled more because he asked me what their names were and I had to make it up. And the whole thing happened because, um, of course, I know that information, but I couldn't remember or relate, retrieve that information when I was anxious. Mm. And so this has huge impacts on learning and behavior. For example, it's one of the main reasons that when a child, um, we often teach strategies to kids in public school in a smaller setting, like the social worker's office or the counselor's office or the psychologist's office or special ed teacher's office. And they remember, they remember the strategy, you know, I'm not going to run out of class and see the nurse. I'm just going to stay in class and hold up this card to the mm-hmm. teacher to give her a signal or I'm not going to, for little ones, I'm not going to bite anyone today. I'm going to move away instead and keep my teeth in my mouth. And that's my strategy. And they agree in the more, in the, when they're calm. And then what happens in the moment is um, when you get anxious, they actually can't remember or retrieve that awesome strategy. So teachers get really frustrated that kids don't always use their strategies in the moment. They still run out of the classroom or they still bite, you know, the, the little uh, kindergartner. And that is because we're not totally understanding that they can't work with their memory at a certain level. So I've had to shift the way I teach strategies. So there's not a heavy memory requirement Mm. on the strategies. The other really um, important thing about working that anxiety goes up and working memory goes down, it also impacts five specific skills. Mm. Um, One is self-regulation. So that's the ability to catch yourself getting a little anxious and calm yourself down. So a lot of kids will go zero to 60 um, or, or overreact is a really common way teachers will describe kids. They, she overreacts all the time and that's a sign of a self-regulation skill. The other um, is, uh, which I think is the most complicated, is accurate thinking. So when you get anxious, we think less accurately. Ten, we tend to think negatively. So when a child looks at an assignment, <clears throat> they might have an inaccurate thought like, oh gosh, this is going to take forever, which then really hinders their ability to initiate the task. Or they have a negative thought, oh, I stink at this, I'm horrible at math, um, which also... Uh, prevents initiation. Um, in in our country, in the U.S., teachers have almost no training in mental health, so they really don't know what to do with thoughts. So if they see a kid, you know, see a piece of paper and their head goes down, they shut down over the assignment, mm-hmm. the teacher ends up trying incentives, right? So come on, buddy, if you get this done, you want to have so much homework later. Or for the little kids, you know, recess is in 10 minutes, just get this done. And unfortunately, um, incentives don't change the thinking in a child um, or teach them to think more accurately. So that might fall flat. Um, For social skills is the third 
um, skill impacted, particularly perspective taking. And that's your ability to perceive other people's thoughts and feelings accurately. So um, for example, if the other day I was parking and I spilled coffee on my um, shoulder, like on the top of my shirt shoulder, and walking down the hallway, anyone glancing in my direction, in my head, I overprescribed they noticed my coffee stain, and I overprescribed that they were thinking something negative. And I always remember that when um, that kind of a moment, when we're trying to understand the skew of perspective taking for kids when they're anxious, it, it becomes everything's about me and people mm. have negative intent. So if a child with trauma history and anxiety sees two kids laughing, he mm. might perceive that as they're laughing at me. And now mm. the child might make a social mistake based mm. on that information. Mm. So it can get very worrisome. For example, I was watching a girl come into the cafeteria for lunch and she sat down. And as she sat down, the girl to her right happened to stand up and go get some napkins behind me. And when she saw the girl get up, she ran out of the cafeteria crying. It took us 40 minutes to get her out of the bathroom. And she reported everyone was talking about me. They were all laughing at me. Um, you know, uh, I have no friends. And what's worrisome about that is we encode in our memory how we perceive events, not how they actually occur. Mm. So for her, that memory has now become a permanent memory that she was excluded during that lunch period. And so she's at risk for now more anxiety, more depression, mm. self-harm, school avoidance, all kinds of bad stuff. So perspective taking is, is a particular social skill impacted. The other two are executive functioning, which is your ability to manage time and stay organized. And the last one is flexible thinking. So I know teachers often have trouble if, like with a little um, kindergarten or first grader, you say, put on your winter coat and the child refuses, you can be there for two hours if the kid is inflexible. Or a teenage girl, if, you know, keeps repeating herself in a conversation and you feel like you're on a, you know, Ferris wheel with her, not getting anywhere. That's um, what's happening is, is they're becoming less flexible. So actually that, the child has to reduce their anxiety to become more flexible in their thinking in that moment. But those are the skills um, that are particularly impacted by anxiety, those five. And um, the way uh, traditionally we look at behavior is we incentivize or, um, it, or uh, provide consequences for behavior, mm. like grades or points or something like that. And, one reason that some of our traditional behavior strategies like incentives aren't particularly as helpful with kids with anxiety and other mental health disabilities is because incentives do not teach skills. Mm. So if you're saying to a child, complete your work and you get, you know, extra recess, um, extra time on the playground, the, the child may or may not be able to do that because if they're flooded with inaccurate thinking, they're still not going to be able to do the work. So what we did not do there is teach the child how to stop intrusive worrying thoughts so that they can attend, so they can complete their work. 
sort of like if you asked me to speak in French for the rest of this podcast and that you would give me, you know, $10,000 or, um, you know, a lot of money to do that, um, I would be motivated, but I'm not able to speak French. So the incentive wouldn't change my behavior. French wouldn't just start coming out of my mouth because I'm motivated. So for me, I spend um, the difference about the behavior plans um, and behavior shaping programs that I'm developing, they're really skill-based. So what I want to teach the child who can't complete work, um, not so much just incentivize it, but I want to teach them how to stop intrusive worrying thoughts. Hmm. For the child, we want to follow directions, um, keep your hands to yourself in line, a little one, hmm. little child. Um, I want to make sure that child knows how to self-regulate and keep themselves calm and learn how to wait so that they can follow the criteria of keeping your hands to yourself in line. Yeah, that's excellent. Thank you so much. There's so many useful little examples and analogies. Um, the one about speaking French, I think that's like a teacher's fantasy, isn't it? <laughs> For kids just yeah. to pick up stuff like that. Um, okay, I'll get you to jump in in a minute, but um, just I just had a, a question. I mean, it sounds as though, you know, those five skill areas, and, and I'd imagine your kind of um, approach to that would be kind of to explicitly teach those skills um, to the students as you would anything else. And uh, one of the kind of the tricky situations we often find ourselves in is, and teachers often say, well, they have just as much trouble learning this uh, sort of these social emotional skills as they do with the academics. Um, and so often what we end up talking about is incidental teaching. And I kind of think of it as like implicit teaching where, you know, from your interactions with them about your kind of relationship building with them, that you're modeling and teaching them these skills incidentally. Um, did you have any thoughts about that, about kind of utilizing your relationship with the students to be able to help them with those skills? Yes. What I find, um, I sort of always joke that I only consult to stressed out teachers because I'm a behavior analyst and I specialize in kids with psychiatric issues um, and challenging behavior. And so the person sitting across from me is usually pretty stressed. And so what I find when, and I was a, cl a classroom teacher myself, mm. so I also feel that I don't want to overwhelm the teacher. Mm. And first of all, teacher training, at least in the U.S., I'm not sure if it's the same in Australia, but teachers get one or zero courses in behavior management and usually zero courses in mental health before you can become a teacher. Um, and so the teacher may feel like I have no idea how to teach perspective taking mm -hmm. or self-regulation that gets very overwhelming. They also worry about the time it's going to take. Mm -hmm. So what I have spent... Um, a lot of time is showing when and where it can work in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And also there's accommodations that I teach that are easy to do and take very little time, but also build the five skills we just talked mm -hmm. about. So making it doable for the teacher is incredibly important. Um, and Otherwise, I think I'm not being helpful as a consultant if I ask them to do something that's not in their comfort zone or they don't have enough training in or um, 
they feel overwhelmed by because they don't have enough time. So what I've tried to do is take the clinical information, um, which is largely what's out there for mental health is clinical, pedagogical, theoretical information and translate it into what a classroom, busy, busy classroom teacher can do to build these skills in their kids. Yeah, that's excellent. Nikai, did you want to jump in and, um, with a question or comment? I was just going to ask Jessica, just following along from that, can you give us a, an explicit example? So say I am the kindy teacher and I've got this little person who will not keep their hands, feet and objects to themselves and I need a doable strategy that'll take very little time for me to try and get this little person to know how to wait and be calm so that then they can keep their hands, feet and objects to themselves. What would that look like for me? Sure. Sure, thanks. So for what teachers do often is they see a child getting dysregulated, meaning um, not quiet and still, sort of having too much extra movement or and uh, getting louder and they usually notice it and then solve the problem for the child they'll say sit up take that yes. out of your mouth stop touching let why are you laying down get up um, lower your voice you're too loud so they're giving directives which unfortunately doesn't teach the kid to be self-aware or to develop a skill so one thing that the first psychoeducational lesson I teach my kiddos, which takes about a half hour, is that your body gives you clues that you're getting anxious. So for little kids, I call it a body check, like look down and see what clues you notice. Um, for older kids, after eight years old, nine years old, when you say the word body, they giggle and feel uncomfortable <laughs> in person. Yeah. Can't say that. So you have to say self-check after for older kids all the way through high school. And so, um, and for example, I'll take even photographs of kids when they're dysregulated and I have them look at the photograph and say, what do you notice? Um, and this is, these are signs you're getting anxious or upset or whatever word you want to use. And so that takes about a half hour. So the kid has somewhat of the concept that we, and now the teacher is armed with a different way to respond. So if now a child's wiggling around in line, the teacher can say, can you check yourself, please? So now the kid has to look down. Instead of saying sit up or stop that, that now the kid has to look down, notice their own body, and they often say, oh, I'm upside down, and my pencil's in my ear, and you know, they notice all this stuff. And then a lot of kids will then self-correct even if they don't, even if you have to say, so please sit up, you're giving them the data hundreds of times a month. This is what you look like when you can still catch yourself. Yeah. Because regulation, um, self-regulation, if you think about a kid on a scale from one to 10, between one and seven is where kids can still catch themselves. They still have enough working memories. They're still rational enough. When you get to the level of an eight, nine, or 10, that's where strategies don't even really work anymore. I don't know if you've ever tried that saying like, take a deep breath, sweetheart. And the kid's like, no, you yeah, take you're a dumb. deep breath. Right. Yeah, gone. Yeah, too late. So it's a life skill. You have to catch kids. You have to let kids notice the, the smaller levels 
because that's when you can still self-regulate. So by saying, check yourself, the teacher is allowing the child to develop the skill of self-monitoring. This is what I look like at those lower lower numbers. This is when I can still catch myself. Mm -hmm. So for me, um, it's really no more effort from a teacher to say, sit up rather than check yourself. But in the second version, they're developing a really crucial life skill in the child to notice their own body and catch themselves. Yeah, thank you. That's great. Yeah, thanks. Another example um, that's really quick for self-regulation is um, the way we give breaks in school. And I don't know if this is true in Australia, but we do a lot of movement breaks in the U.S., on their education plans, movement breaks. Um, we always joke, almost prints out on the form automatically. We almost give it to everybody. Um, on a lot of psychologist reports recommend giving them movement breaks. And one thing um, that teachers, and teachers always report that they give breaks to kids, but I think we, ne- we don't always ask ourselves, are the breaks helpful? And for me, Um, When I do my data, a lot of anxious kids don't look more calm after a movement break. Mm -hmm. And one reason for that um, is because a lot of kids with anxiety and depression, what they need a break from is their thoughts. Mm -hmm. So it's not really the activity itself. It's their thoughts around the activity that's causing the anxiety. So what happens is uh, I, was, I was walking in, for example, the child who taught me this, she was picking her skin on her hands. So it was getting a little bit, um, you know, where it was bleeding and, and there was a lot of, you know, a lot of skin missing and, and she was picking her skin. And so the teachers said, well, we'll give her a break from work and we'll let her color and draw. And when I was watching her color, she was still picking Uh, her arm while she was coloring. And after the coloring break, she had a very hard time getting back to work. And that's a good litmus test for us is if the break was helpful or not. Could the kid, can the kid re-engage? And so she never really re-engaged after the break, which led me to believe that she wasn't really regulated. So one thing I realized from her is that you can think negatively and color at the same time, right? So she could, um, and so I did data and I interviewed her and I said, what are the, what are you thinking right now? What are the thoughts in your head? Different questions. And she would just say, you know, I'm so fat. I'm so ugly. People don't like me. I'm so stupid. And this is what she was doing while she was coloring. You can also worry and color at the same time. My mom was coughing this morning. I know her cancer came back, you know, all those kind of things. Mm. So when we send a kid to the water fountain to go get a drink in the hallway or go for a walk, they can be ruminating on negative thoughts the whole time. Or some of our other movement breaks, like jumping on a trampoline with the little kids or playing with sand as a little sensory break you can be ruminating and worrying and thinking negatively at the same time. So what happens is when the kid comes back to class, they've now just been festering and negative thinking is really hard to now get into algebra. Um, So what I, um, the way I explain it to, to teachers is that we have the right instinct when we can't sleep at night 
Um, we often read a book or watch TV, and that helps us go back to sleep. And the reason we're doing that is because it distracts you from your thoughts for long enough, you can calm down and go back to sleep. So the same idea in school, what they really need a break from is their thoughts. So I call those cognitive distraction breaks or thought breaks. And so, for example, with the girl who was picking her skin, we gave her three pieces of Sudoku is a math game. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yep. Um, and um, some, some of my, and, and it was amazing. She, she almost had no picking. And within 15 to 25 seconds after the break, she could re-engage in work. So that was a really good, um, you know, sign that she had really actually calmed. For little kids, you can do things like find the picture, um, you know, hidden picture things, where's Waldo, those kind of things, um, Mad Libs, word games. Mm -hmm. For teenagers, I teach them more mental things like count all the green things in the room, try to do the alphabet backwards, try to think of the birthdays of all your family members. Um, try to um, think of the first 10 lines of the Star Wars movie, uh, set all the, the whole verse, second verse of your favorite song, those kinds of things actually I have found in my data to be more calming than, than the movement. Sometimes movement is very helpful, so you want to pair movement with a cognitive distraction. So not only just walk in the hallway, but maybe walk and talk with an adult or jump on a trampoline and try to do the alphabet backwards. So sometimes we just need to pair them because there's, um, it's more sophisticated and, and um, complicated why, why kids are getting dysregulated. So some kids are really have this thought-based dysregulation and then um, the strategies would change. In my second book, um, The Behavior Code Companion, I have a data sheet that helps teachers know really quickly, is the break helpful? Which I really encourage us to ask before we keep giving breaks. Yeah, that's excellent. And, and it made me think how, um, even if we've got some good processes around collecting data, that you know, actually talking to the student about their experience is such an important thing that we kind of really slips our mind or that we don't do well enough, I think, sometimes is they have so much to tell us about how useful any strategy or accommodation really is. So that's a really nice reminder of that. So thanks, Jessica. Yeah. That's um, true. Yeah. Um, so you have the FAIR framework, F-A-I-R framework. I wonder if you could introduce that to us just to give us a sense of how you think about challenging students and how you plan to kind of um, plan their support. Sure. So the FAIR um, acronym helps us not forget anything, and it's, um, has, it's a template to incorporate the therapeutic lens to a behavior plan, which sometimes behavior plan templates don't incorporate. So F stands for function, and um, behavioral psychologists feel that um, a child's behavior would not persist unless they were getting something out of it. Attention and escape are the most common functions of behavior. Um, and I do look at the function, um, like for example, attention seeking um, in, a, in a more thorough way than, than we often do. 
But that's the what F stands for. We want to look at what are what's the function. The other place in in the F is for antecedent analysis. Analysis. So antecedents are what happened right before the behavior. Psychologists call them triggers. Um, it just means you know instead of just telling me what the behavior was, I I really want to know what happened right before the child um, bolted from the classroom. And so there are um, actually a very common list of antecedents for kids with mental health disabilities um, that I often teach teachers as well. But we want to look at what the antecedents are and the function. For A, those are the accommodations. That's I gave you a couple of examples on how to shift the way we're doing breaks. So it's um, more skill building, teaching kids to catch their thinking and change and shift and distract their thinking. Um, the body checks or self checks, um, developing that skill. Those are examples of classroom accommodations that are very teacher friendly. Don't take much time from a teacher, but promote the skills. The I stands for interaction strategies. And I think this is as important as any other part of a behavior plan, but you often don't see it written out. And that is um, how to best interact with the child who might be a little defensive, might be hard to reach, um, who has mental health issues, who has a trauma history that um, they don't trust adults. There's a whole art to interacting with a kiddo. For example, one of the um, behavior management 101 kind of uh, strategies is proximity control. So if two kids are chatting and not listening to me and I'm teaching, um, I just have to walk over towards their desks and stand in front of them and keep teaching. And usually just my presence will, um, you know, stop behavior from a lot of kids. For kids with who have had trauma history or kids with um, anxiety, different mental health issues, walking closer may or may not be calming. And that's the teacher's instinct. If a kid looks like he's about to cry or if a kid looks really angry, we often sort of walk closer to that child. And sometimes the child actually um, will, you know, hide in their sweatshirt or divert their eyes down some kids will even fully cry or now be up and more combative. Um, so that if that's the teacher's instinct, what I do when I observe is I notice what the teacher's interaction instinct is, which is a helpful instinct. And it, if it's not a good fit with the child, I just point that out and I write it out. Mm -hmm. So if the child, you know, shows some warning signs like grunting, not answering you, or starts talking in one word sentences, um, or stops giving you eye contact, you might want to back up a little for a kid with trauma history, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so for example, praise, the number one way we give praise in school is the most uncomfortable way to get praise, and that is public praise. Mm -hmm. So teachers will say, Johnny, I loved how you did this, hold that up. Or Sam, your group was so great, can you tell us what you did? Or even just in front of one other student, your paper was amazing, I loved it a lot of kids don't handle praise very well. They reject it. They look uncomfortable. They cover their paper. And the public part is one of the most uncomfortable. So when I um, 
do an analysis that comes up a lot. So I would write down in the interaction strategies section, please avoid public praise. Mm-hmm. Private praise is much more comfortable for this child. And some kids, you know, it's so hard to predict what's comfortable to them. Like to your point, I would pull them aside and just ask them when I'm proud of you, how should I let you know? Mm-hmm. It's a lovely question to ask a kid who looks uncomfortable um, because they probably have a good answer, you know, leave me a note, just don't, I don't want any of my friends to hear, you know, or something like that. So I actually write out, um, how to build a relationship with a kid who has had some school failure and doesn't trust adults, um, is it quite an art? So I would write out an in interaction strategies, things like, please greet this child at the door when he walks into your classroom here are his five favorite things. Ask him two questions about it within the first five, six minutes of class. Um, How was the game? You know, what do you think about the football match? You know, anything like that right away um, is a really important skill that sometimes teachers don't have the instincts for. Mm. So instead of trying to let the teacher figure it out, those of us who have that clinical skill set and kind of are used to working with kids with mental health, we have um, intuitive sort of interaction strategies. And it's really important to write out um, what's the best way to interact with this child so that the child feels comfortable and that the relationship um, is moving forward with between the teacher and the child instead of just having the teacher do her best with instincts. Mm. Um, And because any suggestion I make can bomb um, if the interaction isn't done well. So this is a silly example, but of course it was a true example. Um, I was telling the teacher about those cognitive distraction breaks or thought breaks. And she said, okay, I'll try. And she emails me, it was a disaster. It made it worse. And I said, oh, okay. So I went in, I said, can I see? And I came in the next day to observe. And she went up to the child and said, do you need a break? In this kind of very angry tone, um, confrontational tone, very loud in front of everybody. And so it never occurred to me to say, make sure you use the soft tone. Mm. You know, don't point it out to the, you know, make sure it's more subtle so the whole class. It didn't occur to me to do that. So, of course, the break wasn't going to be helpful if we don't have the interaction skills um, down. So I actually love to write them out. And I love when if the child has a private therapist or an outside psychologist or any mental health people in the building, if they can um, contribute to that part of the behavior plan, people who have... um, good relationships with the kid if they could write out how they got him to trust them um really helpful the r stands for response and this just means what to do when the child's you know crying or yelling of course the emphasis is on preventing us from getting there but um the r section is what can we do to still be building skills and respond in a supportive way um, at the end. I love the quote that um, behavior is really, any behavior is just a a way of communicating a hidden feeling and a hidden request. Mm -hmm. So um, for example, if you get complaints, um, Paul Axtell wrote the book Meetings Matter, and he, he, he was the one that started that. He said, 
um, giving advice to us that when you get a complaint, you just translate it into the hidden feeling and the hidden um, request, and that will make you feel less annoyed. Mm. Um, I think that's true of any behavior. Um, I was walking down the hallway and this high school kid was pounding on the lockers with his fists and kicking the locker and growling, you know, having a little behavior burst. And the teachers with me immediately started to say, stop that, cut it out, knock it off. What are you doing? And which is not necessarily going to deescalate someone. Mm. So what I try to do is not get overwhelmed by what the behavior looks like, Mm. but respond to what the child's, what the feeling, that hidden feeling and that hidden request. So I would have gone up to that kid and said, what's wrong? You look so angry. Can I help you? As if the child was saying with words, I'm so upset, I'm so upset. That would be a better instinct. So it's almost like thinking of yourself as a translator. You translate the behavior into what the child's communicating in terms of feelings and requests. And, that, and, and so in the R section, I try to help people have a supportive response um, and also a skill building response. Yeah. That, that those are such great examples, and and it sounds to me as though, um, you know, you're extremely calm in those situations, um, which is a complete asset in terms of de-escalating students like that. Um, what would be your tips? You've mentioned some already, Jessica, and I'd probably get Kai to jump in at some point as well after this. But, um, what would be your tips to teachers around implementing the strategies? Um, and working with um, kind of challenging and oppositional students. If you had like top three tips, what would they be? Yeah, I think um, that idea of being a translator Mm. is really helpful. So if the child is behaving in a certain way, try to think about what are they communicating because behavior is just communication and they're communicating a feeling and a request. And if you translate it, um, that can be, very helpful for your instincts. Mm. I think um, also understanding that there's a skill there. So um, for, and just knowing a little bit about how to analyze behavior instead of jumping to an assumption of why someone's doing something. So for example, um, negative attention seeking is one of the most I think frustrating behaviors for teachers when a child almost seems to prefer doing something inappropriate to get attention. Um, I spend a lot of time with teachers on that because the way they will interpret it often is he's manipulative, he's being bad, he's, he's a bully. Um, and again, that's us jumping to an assumption of why that's happening. Mm. But in my um, analysis, I don't just look at attention seeking, but I look at what type of attention is the child looking for. And with kids with inappropriate, doing something inappropriate actually works better to get attention. Mm -hmm. So if you're sitting there quietly working, you may or may not get attention. Mm -hmm. And if you act out, you will. Mm -hmm. So the first reason kids do that is because it's, um, it's more efficient. It's an easier, faster. So if you drop a book, uh, you know, big dictionary in the classroom, teacher is going to give you attention in about two seconds. Mm. If you sit there quietly, it's going to take a long time to get attention. Mm. Um, this is what kids do when parents are on the telephone all the time. You know, yeah. how little 
even older kids, the second the parent goes on the telephone, they start whining or saying mom, a hundred million to mom, 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 mom. And that's because they have no idea when you're going to get off the phone. So, and it's, it's just an easier, faster way to get attention. Mm. So it's also more predictable. Mm. So adults are more predictable when you're inappropriate. When you're quietly working, you cannot predict how many minutes it's going to be for, for a teacher to come over. So for example, you know, teachers will check on kids as they're working and then they say to a kid, oh, I'll be back to check on you. And they walk away. The kid has absolutely no idea how many minutes that's going to be, mm. um, when they're coming back, if at all. So the so many kids will get off tasks. If the the bigger the behavior, the faster the teacher moves. So what I recommend is make positive attention compete better because when they're doing something inappropriate, it works better right now. So we want positive attention to compete. For example, for the predictability, mm. um, the, if you check on kids when they're doing their work and now you're about to walk away from them, all you have to do is write on the top of the paper, 1015. I'm going to be back at 1015 to check on you. If I forget, come tap me on my shoulder. Mm. For middle school, high school teachers, um, the recipe of a classroom is X amount of time for independent work where they're you know, no, not teacher directed. And so if you have an anxious kid walking into your classroom, I would write on a sticky note, you know, 1130 and hand it to the child as they're walking in and just say to them, if you don't understand something, please do not worry. At 1130, I'm going to come check and make sure you understand. So now what I noticed in my data is not only do they not act out for attention or, or ask for help a million times, they sit there, but also they don't get out of their seat. They're not check, sharpening their pencil 20 times or hiding in the bathroom. And a lot of kids with anxiety have low resiliency. So the second they feel uncomfortable, they um, need, need help immediately. Or when they're frustrated, they need you to fix it immediately. They don't have a lot of resiliency. And so what I've noticed in my data is not only if you have the sticky note and you know when the teacher's coming, they stay in their seat. And I think my hypothesis for that is the anxious thought is now paired with the comforting thought. Like, yeah. oh gosh, I don't understand this. Oh, but my teacher will be here in seven minutes. Yeah. And now they can sit. And as we know, sitting with uncomfortable feelings and tolerating that is a skill in and of itself. So they're building some resiliency. The world didn't end. I tolerated this discomfort. Just like if we were in an emergency room in a hospital, we would check the time every two seconds because knowing when help is coming helps us tolerate discomfort. So by analyzing why a kid is looking for attention, so I gave you two examples, there's a few more, but yeah. whether it's because it's more efficient or more predictable, you can change the way you're doing positive attention. And I think predictable positive attention, like in the examples I gave, is one of the most comforting things you can do for a child makes them feel safe in your classroom. If you say, I'm going to be back in 15 minutes and you come back, you've established yourself as a trustworthy, mm -hmm. consistent adult, reliable adult, um, which is one of the most comforting things you can do for a student. That is really, um, thank you for spending so much time on that because the predictability piece is so important. And just to reiterate what you're saying, you know, 
I think it's often a point that gets missed is that, you know, misbehavior actually gives kids a lot of predictable control over their environment, really, isn't it? And particularly the relationships to the um, adults in the room, the teachers. And so having that predictable um, and consistent um, positive kind of interactions and reinforcement is incredibly powerful, particularly for kids who are anxious uh, and traumatized who, who really lean on that predictability to um, regulate themselves and manage their kind of difficulties. Yeah, and those are very cool. those are very easy to do as a teacher, the, the yeah. examples I gave. Um, again, I'm always mindful of making it easy for the teacher, but handing someone a sticky note doesn't take much time for you, and now that child is comfortable and not acting out. Yeah. Um, so it benefits everybody. Totally. Okay, I'll just get you to um, jump in and ask a question or comment. No, I'm right. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, happy to listen. Excellent. Um, Jessica, thank you so much. This has been really useful and practical. Um, what, what do you find yourself being curious about in your work at the moment? I continue to be curious about the rise in anxiety in children. Um, the statistics right now are um, in the US that about 33.9% of teenagers have clinically significant anxiety. Mm -hmm. I know that's similar to the UK. Um, so one in three teenagers right now. The levels of anxiety in preschoolers are harder to measure because it's harder to test them. But um, this, it's speculated to be about the same rate. Um, so this trend is not improving um, and is likely to be increasing. And I am very curious about the factors of why that is. And I'm also worried about the at higher levels that the teacher training is not shifting too much in the U.S. Um, to meet the need, this need. So teachers are still not getting much training at all in mental health. So what they're doing is they're trying things in the classroom that work with typical children, and that can actually lead to more anxiety or depression in some kids. And so um, you, you really can't have the right instinct unless you have some of the neurobiological information. And so... Um, I am very um, involved in trying to help at the university level to move a little more towards who we have in our classroom and, te and, and mm. teacher training so that people come out in the, to the field um, with, armed with more information, which will lead to better um, you know, instincts in the moment and more skills uh, or, or toolbox of strategies. That's excellent. And I'm sure a lot of them are listening into this, <laughs> learning from this from right from you. Um, Jessica, how can people get in touch with you and um, kind of check out any resources you have to offer? Sure. My website is probably the best place to go. Um, that is jessicaminahan.com. So my last name is M-I-N-A-H-A-N. So jessicaminahan.com. Um, my two books are there and um, tons of articles and podcasts and 
um, resources. I also blog on the Huffington Post, so there's smaller um, articles through blogs on my website as well. That's excellent. Yeah, and for people listening, please do check out Jessica's book. It's incredibly useful, um, and I know we've used it as a reference several times. Um, thank you so much, Jessica. Kay, did you have any final comments or questions for Jessica today? Uh, just one final self-reflective comment that I will think twice the next time I'm observing a teacher teach and I write, don't forget to praise. <laughs> <laughs> because I will then follow that up with some explicit explicit strategies that clearly show them how to do what I've just said yeah. and in Perfect. what situation because like you said Jessica I just yeah I you just assume and you just get those blanket sort of responses and it's just don't forget to praise don't forget to praise you know mm -hmm. good job you praise that child and which is okay for the majority but they're not really the ones you're there observing to provide the support for so yes so mm -hmm. thank you that's um a key takeaway message of for myself thank you thank you yeah thank you so much jessica it'd be great to keep in touch um but thank you for your time Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. That was our interview with Jessica Minahan. To get access to the links and resources mentioned in the interview, please visit www.tipbs.com. If you are enjoying listening to our show, please rate and review on iTunes. Your ratings make all the difference. Thank you for listening. See you next time.